Thank you for joining us for the Lafayette Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. Please join us each week as we listen to lessons given on Sunday mornings at the Lafayette Church of Christ. Can everyone hear me okay? Is my mic good? All right. I'm notoriously bad at knowing where to put it on my shirt, so I'm glad to know that. Um, uh, glad to be with all of you this morning. Uh, as uh, Garrett and others have said, uh, Kyle and the ministry and elder staff are um, out on a retreat this week, so I'm especially glad uh, to give them that time away to uh, grow and pray and be with one another. Um, and Garrett, if it's all right with you, my plan is for this entire sermon to be in conversational English. Um, <laughs> I do speak a little bit of it, so if that won't be too distracting, I'll, um, I, I'm just going to stick with that this morning. Uh, I've, I've been told, Garrett already started us off, I've been told that it's kind of standard custom for whoever's preaching this morning to open the sermon with some joke along the lines of like, mom and dad are gone, the house is ours, like party kind of thing, right? Uh, the elders, the ministers are all, are all gone. I'm not going to stoop to that level. I'm not going to make outlandish uh, requests about what we could or couldn't do with the church. But if I was, I'm just going to point out that a church in England recently turned their uh, worship center whenever services weren't happening into a putt-putt golf course. So just an idea uh, uh, if, if we could get some, some momentum behind that. Uh, I'm kind of old school. I'm not going to be using slides this morning, but I am going to be referring to the text of James off and on as we go. So if you'd like, uh, please grab your Bible or your phone, however you um, keep scripture in front of you and pull that up. And as we begin, let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning, this time to gather together, to worship, to receive communion, to give and to be uh, with one another. And as we turn now to your word, I pray that we would listen to it attentively and carefully, and that we would uh, welcome you into our midst through the words of scripture. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. My wife, Sarah, and I have uh, recently watched this documentary on Amazon called Lula Rich. Has anybody heard of this documentary? It's pretty new. It's on, on Amazon on Prime. It's the inside story of this company called LulaRoe. Have you heard of LulaRoe? Is this familiar to some people? Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a clothing company that did and it still does make women's tights and dresses. I know Sarah has some stuff from him. I'm sure uh, many, uh, many people do. I did not wear my LulaRoe gear this morning. Some of you may have even sold it yourselves. I, I don't know. Um, but the show is sort of the inside story of, of LuLaRoe, which starts off really crazy and sort of blows up in everybody's face. It's about this entrepreneur couple that starts this small company selling clothes out of a garage, and then within a few years, grows it into this billion-dollar business. And of course, nobody is ready for it to be grown into a billion-dollar business, and hilarity and tragedy and problems ensue. Uh, some say that the founders of LuLaRoe are scammers, that they are uh, this husband and wife that um, have intentionally pulled vulnerable people into a pyramid scheme that makes a few people incredibly wealthy and puts the rest of people into a staggering amounts of debt. Um, and uh, 
what starts off as a rags to riches sort of story becomes ominous as those buying and selling Lula Rich start getting defective product, are spending thousands and thousands of dollars just to try to acquire the right sorts of uh, product for them to sell and struggle to make money when the market for, for the product dries up. And at the heart of the show is throughout, it's like four or five episodes, throughout every episode, the heart of the show is this question of culpability. Who is at fault for all of these problems that come up? Is it the founders? Were they these corrupt scammers who took advantage of their clients and lied about their product? Or is it the, the sellers of LuLaRoe, the people that actually take the product and go out into the world and try to sell it to people? Are these just men and women who get in over their heads and out of a desire to become rich and wealthy and have lots of nice things, mishandle their business and drive themselves into debt. And of course, there's uh, interviews, one side you know, blaming the other back and forth, very, very dramatic as you would expect. But as I watched the, the series, I, I decided I think that there was a deeper problem running throughout the LuLaRoe saga. Uh, one that's much more awkward and difficult to address than just who's at fault, because it calls into question the morals and the motives and actions of every person involved in the LuLaRoe story. The biggest problem I see at play is actually the issue of desire. What do I mean by that? Regardless to the answer of, to, to the, answer of the question of who's at fault in the LuLaRoe story, it's only the desire of everyone involved in the story, from the founders to the sellers to the buyers, to make money, have nice things, and live a luxurious lifestyle that allows the situation to get out of the hand, to get out of hand. It's the desire for more, for more, for better, for more. The founders of LuLaRoe want to get rich. They want to drive fancy cars. They want to be wealthy patrons in their community. The, the uh, people pulling LuLaRoe into the business and, and, and trying to get them to sell more, they want to make more money. They want to have bigger homes, buy multiple cars, go on fancy vacations. There's stories about uh, people maxing out credit cards to buy multiple cars so that they can look like they have it all together and sell more stuff. And the buyers of the product, some of the really extreme ones that they interview, desire to have this clothing that's unique and fashionable and really high quality. There's this, there's this uh, phenomenon, I guess, in this world called searching for the unicorn print. So the, the tights and the dresses all have these unique prints on them. And apparently some people would spend days and weeks and months and tons of money trying to track down this one print that they especially loved and that was especially rare and hard to get. There were the same pieces of clothing, just with different patterns, but those weren't good enough. They wanted to track down these particular pieces of clothing. And the interesting thing is that if any one of these groups in the story had renounced these desires, had said, you know what, enough is enough. I don't need that unicorn print. I don't need that bigger house. If they had renounced them or gotten rid of them or, or just ignored them, most of the problems would never have arisen. People wouldn't have driven themselves into debt. The founders wouldn't have kept trying to milk more and more and more money out of their customers. It's the desire for something more 
something better, something unique that causes the conflict, the broken dreams, and the tragedy. When we, when we think about our Christian faith and discipleship, I think we often think of it in terms of two different categories. We think about what is it that we believe and what is it that we do. We confess that we believe in one God, in the Holy Trinity, in the death and resurrection of the Son, salvation from sins, Scripture as the Word of God. And we have discussions about what Christians should or shouldn't do. We set out moral and ethical principles. We try to conform our lives to this image of what's right and wrong and do the right things as opposed to the wrong. But we rarely think about Christian faith and discipleship in terms of desire. What is it that we want? What is it that we want most deeply? And what are the sorts of things that Christians should want? What are the things that we should want and desire? In the beginning of our text this morning in James 4, James focuses in on the problem of desire and makes what I think is a pretty startling claim. The first century church of James's day, just like ours today, was no stranger to division and toil and infighting. It was a fact of life in the church. And you read the New Testament, you see this all over. But what James says is that the conflict and the infighting and the quarreling in the church arises because of the desires that people have. He writes in verse one, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Desires are powerful things. On the one hand, they can be really mundane and neutral because they direct us towards things we actually need. We desire food, we want to eat, because we genuinely need nourishment to survive. God has given us a desire for food. We desire to have a home because we genuinely need shelter and safety and protection. God has given us that desire. We desire love and affection and relationship because God is love and has created us to love. God has given us that desire. And without desires, we would not survive for long. We need them. But on the other hand, desires are so powerful because we are sinners and they can really, really easily get out of hand. We desire more and more food to the point that it becomes unhealthy. We desire more money, a bigger house, a nicer car to make us feel more safe and secure when we are long met the threshold for being safe and secure and having enough. We desire love and affection and intention from people to inappropriate degrees through extramarital affairs, public cries for attention, ostentatious displays of wealth and accomplishments, somehow convinced that the love and affection we do have is simply not enough. And because our desires are so innate, they can feel to us, no matter how out of hand they are, like they're unnecessary or they're unstoppable and that they're good. 
So to, to the point that not getting what you want or desire quite literally feels like a dire situation. How many of you have fasted before and maybe gone 12 hours without eating? And by the eighth hour, your whole body is screaming at you, put something in me, please, I'm dying. You could go another two weeks and you would basically be fine, right? But it's, it feels like it's completely necessary in that moment. And that unchecked desire drives us to do extreme things. James continues in verse two. He writes, you desire, but you don't have. So you kill, you covet, but you can't get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Desire run amok may be one of the most deadly and harmful spiritual issues of all. Because according to James, not only does it lead to strife, to harmful sin, and even to the point of murder, but also because it distorts our relationship with God as well. If, as Christ says, the heart of the law and the prophets is to love God and love your neighbor, misplaced and disordered desires keep us from doing both. The desires battling within us lead us to prioritize our own wants and needs over those of others, to conflate what I want with what everybody needs, to fight for what's mine instead of seeking to serve and give to others. And even more terribly, the desires battling in us lead us to seek our own fulfillment apart from God, our own fulfilled, or to fulfill our own needs apart from God. It leads us to assume that what we want from God is what we need from God. Or to suppose that what we've been given, or we might say earned, is a tool for us to use for our own pleasures, to meet our own needs and our own desires. And I've spent so much time this morning so far setting up this problem of desire, because I think it's something we don't talk about enough. And it's something I don't think I can really put too fine of a point on. When our desires are left unchecked, or when we desire to meet our own needs and fulfill our own concerns above those or others, or when our ultimate desire is for wealth, pleasure, satisfaction, or anything else other than God, spiritual sickness is sure to follow. James says uh, that, we, that those who are like this, we're like adulterous people when our desires become out of control, no better than a man who cheats on his wife or a woman who abandons her husband. So what do we do? That's the question. What do we do? And you're probably like me thinking, okay, James, if this is such a problem, if desire is such an issue, what can we do? How do we get ourselves into check? How do we learn to use our desires in a good and holy manner? The first way I think that we learn to put our desires in order or allow God to put our desires in order, according to James, is through friendship with God, born of repentance. With his classic emphasis and hyperbole that Kyle has pointed out to us many times, James tells us that to be friends with the world 
to desire in the way that the world desires and to desire the world above all else is to be enemies with God. Not to just be distracted from God, to be enemies with God. Listening to James, we hear the challenging teachings of Christ, James's brother, echoed. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? My dad uh, has told me a story a few times about plowing a field with his, his grandfather when he was younger. And the, the first time my great-grandfather turned the plow over to my dad, my dad set out down the field um, trying to make his line as straight as possible as he, as, he, as he tore up the soil. And to do that, he's going along with the plow and he's staring down in front of him, trying to keep uh, the plow from going too far to the right or left, trying to keep it in line, looking right in front of him, being really diligent and really cautious all the way. But when he got to the end of the field, and he turned around to look at his line, it was all over the place, as rough as it could be. It wasn't straight. It was veering off to the side, jagged, as bad as it could be. And for the next pass, what my great-grandfather great, great does is he goes down to the other end of the field, and he sticks a stake in the end. And he turned the plow over to my dad, and he told him, while you're pushing it, don't look right in front of you. Just stare at the stake. Look at the stake and move towards it. And so my dad's surprised when he made the second pass, following his grandfather's instructions, he saw that the line was straight and true. I think desire is a little bit like eyesight in this story. Just as my dad's gaze determined the direction he would go, so our desires direct the path of our life. If we desire worldly things, our path will always go in the direction of the world and we'll be friends with the world. If we desire God, our path will go towards God and we'll be friends with God. But as James says, our, our desires battle within us. Part of us desires for God. Part of us desires the world. And to keep our desires set on God and our path Going in his direction requires repentance. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, and it literally means something like change of mind, or we might say a change of direction, literally turning and going the other way. Our desires will lead us into sinful habits and practices and will make us friends with the world, and it's only by owning up to this sinfulness with clarity and honesty and courage and turning towards God over and over and over again, that our desires will be directed more and more away from the world and towards God. With bracing clarity, James tells us to submit to God, draw near to him, purify ourselves and clothe ourselves in humility. Grieve, mourn, and wail, James writes. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before God, and he will lift you up. The, world, the word spirituality we hear a lot today is often used to describe a life of peace and comfort and authenticity and happiness. 
And these things all have a place in the spiritual life. There's no doubt. But a spirituality that doesn't take account of our sinfulness, our desires that direct us towards friendship with the world and into a fraught relationship with God is a weak and deceptive thing. It's not a genuine spirituality. Because it's only through grieving our brokenness and mourning our sins and bewailing our misplaced desires that we're able to turn towards and receive the mercy of God that lifts us up. So we redirect our desires by repentance and turning towards a friendship with God. Here's the second way that I think James tells us we get our desires directed towards God. We do it by extending the lavish and uncompromising grace to our brothers and sisters of God, the the grace of God to our brothers and sisters. James writes in verse 11 and 12, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? As Kyle has mentioned several times throughout this whole series, James can often seem like a works-based book or the works-based part of scripture where we contrast faith and works because it's filled with these commandments and admonitions and instructions. But what I think Kyle's also helped us to see is that James is a book that, it, Kyle's words, I love this from a week or two ago, it's a book that is thoroughly dripping with grace. James is a book thoroughly dripping with grace. And so when we look at these verses 11 and 12 uh, in James, we might see another specific set of works that we need to engage in. Don't judge. Don't usurp the law giver. But what I also see is an invitation to not only receive the grace of God through our repentance, but to be a vessel of God's grace to others as well. What is refusing to judge someone other than choosing to extend grace to them? James is always encouraging us and disposing us to be more gracious to one another. You're in a church and you're looking around and you realize my brother or my sister is causing conflict or turmoil because they have these misplaced desires. Well, guess what? So are you and so am I. And the only way that we break free of this cycle of quarreling and fighting and sin born out of these desires is by opting out, by submitting to one another, by placing the desires of our brothers and sisters ahead of our own, by not passing judgment on the failings of others, by passing along the grace that's been given up to us along to others. And when we opt out of sitting on the judgment seat, what we're doing is directing ourselves back towards God. We're saying, God, I am letting go of my desire to be right, to be superior, to be respectable, to be in charge of my brother or sister. And in doing this, we're putting our desires back in their proper place. 
because we're desiring the lordship of God above all other things, above ourselves, above our brothers and sisters, and above our church. So if you've never tried it before, or even if you have, uh, what I'd like to encourage you to take away from the sermon and to do this week is to sit down and think about the things that you desire the most. This is going to be a difficult task because there's a good chance that the first list you make will not be an especially true or honest one. Because to see what we really desire means looking at our bank accounts, looking at our social media posts, noticing the people and things that make us angry or the people and things that make us happy. It's also difficult because when we do this, we'll probably find out things about ourselves that we don't particularly like. We will have to face up to the fact that that job promotion we've been seeking is more about the desire for excess wealth and security than it is for generosity and charity. Or we'll have to face up to the fact that our advocacy for some political cause is more about our desire for praise and admiration and self-worth than it is for the justice of God. Or we'll have to face up to the fact that that degree we've been chasing is more about a desire for accolades and respect than it is for seeking truth. But when we discover these things, and here's the good news, we shouldn't fret or fear or despair. Yes, our desires lead us off track and our gaze has been turned from Almighty God. But through the rhythms of repentance and grace, God can slowly set our desires back in line. Through mourning, grieving, and wailing, God helps us to realize how desperate we are for mercy and teaches us humility. Through the practice of graciousness and extending grace to others, God helps us to realize that he alone is perfect. He alone is the perfect judge, and he teaches us submissiveness. And as we live into these rhythms more and more, repentance, grace, repentance, grace, we begin to realize that the things that we desire that seemed so important, so essential, so right, were never actually all that important. That even the greatest of our desires were simply shadows, reflections, and hints at an even greater desire. That at the end of the day, the only thing really worth desiring at all is the one who made us and is always calling us back to him. The one who was and is and is to come. St. Augustine, the great Christian theologian and minister, summed up this idea perfectly in his book, Confessions, that he wrote over 1,600 years ago. Augustine was a sinful guy. He traced everything in the world, uh, sex, money, power, and none of it satisfied him. And summarizing his lifelong struggle with misplaced desire and sin that ultimately led him into the arms of God, he wrote this. Oh, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. As we close this morning, may this be our prayer and our praise this week. 
as we seek to desire God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength through the rhythms of repentance and grace. Garrett will be back in the prayer room after services today to uh, pray or speak with anybody uh, who would like to. Let's stand and sing.